another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Dr. Antonella Banchi, scientific director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, as well as a senior investigator within NIDA and adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University. In this episode, we will talk about cocaine and Ritalin, new clinical trials using TBS to treat addiction, and bringing in the new year. All this and more coming up. We're here with Dr. Antonello Banchi, Scientific Director as well as Senior Investigator at NIDA. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Dr. Banchi. My pleasure, Ada. We usually like to talk a little bit about your background. I know you're from Italy. What were you into growing up if you were thinking about doing scientific research at an early age? As a matter of fact, I did not. I've always been attracted since, since I was a child, as far as I can remember, to psychiatry in a very general term. I've always been very attracted to complex behaviors. Uh, you, I used to steal the psychiatry book from my cousin who was in medical school when, when I was basically a child and just read what, uh, what depression was about, what schizophrenia was about, substance abuse and so on. So that, that is all I knew. I was very attracted by the brain in general. I knew I wanted to get into medical school, uh, but I, I didn't know at all when I started that I was going to do any kind of research. So it, it happened during medical school, as a matter of fact. Just to elaborate on the complex behavior, so you mean all those diseases like schizophrenia, depression, things that happen in humans, um, were those things that were well understood at the time? started medical school in 1985. In, in Italy, you start when you're 19. We don't have college. So back then, in Italy, the major thrust of psychiatry was psychoanalysis. So we knew almost nothing about biological psychiatry, at least from the school of medicine that, that I went to. So I was, yes, attracted on one hand to the psychiatric diseases, but on the other hand, I also realized that uh, there was very little known as a possibility to do research in that field. It is a long way to say why I actually chose neurology as a residency, because I felt that neurology in Italy, my school was way ahead in terms of connected the brain regions to their functions and, and diseases. So I chose neurology, but eventually I sort of took advantage of dopamine as a bridge that I think is an amazing bridge, this chemical between really neurology and psychiatry because of all the different diseases and physiological behaviors that is uh, connected with. And they really range from way across neurology and psychiatry. So that's why in a twisted way, I always walk this fine line in between psychiatry and neurology. Do you still see patients now? Still spend basically my entire vacations seeing patients in Italy, yes. <laughs> so you shuttle back and forth between here and Italy, the patients yes, are in Italy? Yes, I go back every three, four months for just a few days and I spend my summer vacations in Italy. So it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's fun. I love it. I love does it. Does it inform your research at all? Absolutely does. I, I always come back with uh, ideas. I actually get ideas on how to treat patients sometimes, always within the guidelines, of course, but it helps me a lot as a scientist and as a physician, actually. I always have that why, why question, why this patient not responding to this medication or what can we do, what else could be done for this patient beyond the traditional uh, thoughts and schemes. So I love this shutting back and forth mentally between the basic science and, and, um, and clinical. 
That's something interesting you said. So people prefer to see neurologists as opposed to psychiatrists? <laughs> yes. is, is there a reason for that? or? Well, in Italy, if you see a psychiatrist, you must be crazy. So if you see a neurologist, you know, could be because you have a migraine or something else. So it's, uh, it's easier to break the ice and say, okay, I'll get myself seen by someone. But usually neurologists are easier than psychiatrists for, for their general mentality, for people that are not in our field. There is a stigma about seeing a psychiatrist in Italy, you know. So to get back to your research, so as we know, you started working on dopamine early on because of your interest in mental health and also, you know, complex behaviors. And so from Italy, you actually came to the United States to do more research. And so it turns out you're no stranger to the West Coast or to the Bay Area uh, where we are. And so first you started out with a postdoc at the Volum Institute with John Williams. And there you published a paper that was directly testing the effect of uh, morphine and cocaine, two well-known drugs of abuse, on dopamine receptors. And so to give us some context, was this one of the early papers or first papers to show effects of these, of these drugs on dopamine receptors? Or was there something that gave you a hint um, as to you know, this effect? It was both from a synaptic physiology point of view, because as you know, I'm an electrophysiologist. It was one of the first papers to show the synaptic effects of chronic cocaine and morphine exposure on dopamine receptors. And uh, it, was, it was also one of the first uh, studies that, that began to mix behaviors with synapses and uh, in this kind of multidisciplinary approach that, that now is very common, especially with this amazing discovery genetics but uh, back then in 1996 was was a, the beginning for us to try to say okay now let's just manipulate chronically in vivo receptors and behaviors and now let's go to the synapses and see what changes so it was back at, at the beginning of of this kind of wave of studies so but then yes it did inform me on on what to do next when i had the chance to open my own laboratory just a few years later. So so it, it was connected, yes. And so just a few years later, you, you moved a little bit south down the coast. You became a professor at UCSF. And there you actually made a landmark discovery in which you showed that a single dose or a single exposure of cocaine in a rodent could actually induce long-term potentiation at synapses onto dopaminergic cells. So again, we're referring to this electrophysiology and, and changes in strength of synapses, but you can, can you explain for us precisely uh, what it is that you did and showed, and if you were surprised by the finding? You basically showed something that now might sound pretty obvious, that drugs of abuse such as cocaine produce a form of cellular memory, which is measured as a strengthening of synapses between neurons, right? If I tell you this now, you, you would say, and of course, I, I, I know that, but well, back then in 2000, no one had actually proven that that was the case, so that the synapses were strengthened by exposures to drugs. And we started from the simplest experiment, a single cocaine exposure. And the surprise was that, yes, cocaine strengthened these excitatory synapses, but it did it for way longer than the time of exposure to cocaine, which is supposed to last even after an in vivo injection for just a few hours. And we basically saw this synaptic memory, this potentiation lasting for up to five days after the single injection. So that basically started this whole field of trying to connect 
exposure to drugs of abuse with uh, changes in synaptic plasticity, right? So that long-term changes are basically produced by drugs of abuse. And this was a study actually in collaboration with one of your amazing faculty at Stanford, Robert Malenka, who was moving from San Francisco to, to Stanford, actually, at the time. Yes. Long-term potentiation or strengthening synapses had actually been shown before, right, in other brain areas, but in your case, you're actually in the brainstem, I believe. And so, and so was this contrast, was it surprising to people to see this plasticity in the VTA, or was it more the fact that drugs had this direct effect on, on synapses in the, in the brainstem? It, it was, uh, I would say, not surprising to us at the end because we had a lot of clues that that was going to happen but but it was surprising to see a form of plasticity completely disconnected at the time from from a given behavior we still don't know to be perfectly honest and many studies have been done by my lab and many others such as Christian Lucia, Robert Malenka, Peter Calavas and others what does it exactly mean to show and to have this plasticity produced by drugs of abuse. It's still an open question. We know now that every major drug of abuse produces it, as well as stress. But uh, the meaning of this, as it happens in the hippocampus with plasticity, where this form of plasticity was discovered many years ago, it still eludes scientists. We still know that this is the most prominent form of brain synaptic plasticity, but the meaning, behaviorally speaking, of the presence of this plasticity for us studying substance abuse or for others studies other forms of learning and memory, it's still not entirely clear. We are still all working on that's it. That's interesting. So, so in a sense, because if you think about it, you know, the plasticity that's been studied before, you know, we could think of it as something we use for learning, you know, learning a new task, we have encoding a memory. But in this case, there's a drug of abuse that, you know, as far as I know, is is artificially produced by humans. I don't know why we like it so much or, or learn to like it so much, but somehow it's in play here. Exactly. And, and the key question for us is really to try to figure out if this form of synaptic plasticity is one of the key structural changes that is underlying these behaviors, right? If it's a chicken and egg question, right? Do we need this form of plasticity in order to become more vulnerable to wanting drugs in the future? And, uh, and this, if we remove that form of plasticity, can we now forget about drugs and not care about them, right? So this is what, what many of us are working on. I see. And, and cocaine or these drugs of abuse, they don't mimic anything endogenous, right? So... It's interesting. Actually, that, this is a great question. They do. Yeah. They do oh, because if you measure this form of plasticity after, for example, food intake or sugar, right, something pleasant, it's identical in terms of changes in synaptic strength. But the main difference, this is a great question, actually, that we have observed, and that was a study by Billy Chen in 2008, is that food and drugs do produce the same amplitude of synaptic plasticity on these dopamine cells, but with food is gone in a matter of days, a day or two, with drugs it can last for months. I see. So it's like an aggravated form of something, a process that we already have. Exactly. So the plasticity per se is nothing pathological. It happens with normal learning in dopamine cells. What is pathologically different between drugs and normal uh, rewards such as food or sucrose is that it's lasting for a much, much longer time. If you train rats actually to self-administer cocaine or food, the cocaine self-administration will show you this plasticity now for months. 
while food does it and it fades away within a matter of a day. So the quality is identical but the duration is extremely different and that's kind of the holy grail for all of us, right? Why does cocaine produce plasticity that becomes a form of synaptic rigidity, if you will? Why does it last for, for months in complete absence of cocaine exposure? So this is a form of very unconscious memory, right? This is not the hippocampus, as you were saying before. This is a midbrain, a very deep, basic brain region. So it, it doesn't tell you what it's thinking about, but it just acts, right? So that's, that's the mystery about this brain region, the, the fascination with plasticity that we all have is because of that. Interesting. And as you say, there are still a lot of mysteries about addiction and its synaptic basis, but what about on a more practical level, and especially with your perspective as a clinician, how far do you think we are from employing the kind of basic work that you've done on uh, addiction and drugs of abuse to actually treating addiction in patients? We actually jumped way ahead thanks to another person that, that is your neighbor. Actually, a few people that were your neighbors at Stanford, and I'm referring to Carl Dysterow and Boyd and Feng Jiang, when they discovered and created the field of optogenetics. Because the amazing beauty, in my opinion, the most beautiful thing about optogenetics is not just that it allows you to figure out cell specificity in given behaviors, study brain region by brain region, subgroups of cells, but once you figure out what optogenetic can do to change and modify a behavior, you can run directly from your basic science discovery in rats or mice and actually talk to the clinicians who have similar techniques. They are not as precise as optogenetics, but they can employ deep brain simulation as they are in Switzerland, for example, or transcranial magnetic simulation as it's been done here in, in the US and in Europe, and basically translate basic science findings into the clinic. And I'll make you a very simple example. We published a study with optogenetics about a year and a half ago, where we showed that after chronic compulsive cocaine seeking, a portion of your prefrontal cortex called the prelimbic cortex shuts down. Chronic cocaine exposure in these compulsive rats will make this brain region completely silent. Then we used optogenetics, imagine as a pacemaker, right, in a heart whose bradycardic was stopped. And we turn on at one per second stimuli this silent brain region. And this compulsive cocaine seeking vanished in a matter of hours. Some clinicians actually took this very basic RET study very seriously, and they actually designed clinical trials by using TMS in patients to stimulate, with the goal of stimulating the equivalent brain regions on a human brain. Now, there was a strong rationale already to do that because we knew before we started our rodent study that humans, that are exposed to cocaine chronically have a hypoactivity in the frontal cortex. So they said, okay, now we have a, a location on where to simulate, and we know causally that if we turn it on, and we couldn't have done it in humans before, if we turn on this brain region, we can wipe out this cocaine seeking, and they ran clinical study showing exactly that by using transcranial magnetic simulation. And actually, this study is about to be written as we speak. I just saw the very preliminary data, but it looks as if 
many people who were uh, cocaine abusers, who, who had been cocaine abusers for years, after a few sessions, about five weeks of TMS, a few times a week, actually gave up completely looking for cocaine and more, most of all being interested into cocaine. The other amazing thing that, that anecdotally these patients will tell you, right, okay, if you don't care anymore about taking cocaine, do you care about anything else? Do you care about food? Do you care about your other passions, sex, whatever it is that pleases you? And they told me in person, because I, I'm with them, some of them, they said, I actually, I am caring now again about my daughter, about my wife, about I loved reading before I got sucked into cocaine and now I started reading again. So it is as if this cloud that cocaine had created was, was completely uh, removing every other interest from them. And now those passions and interests that they had are actually re-emerging, so it's incredible to actually speak with these people when when they tell you this rodent study saved my life basically because <laughs> because someone took it seriously, right, and had the right. guts to get into the clinic with it and say, right. let's give it a shot. You know, TMS is right. not precise, but you know what? Right. Somehow it's working. So, in terms of the usefulness of of optogenetics, in terms of you know translation. So with electrical stimulation, for example, the more old-fashioned method where you could also, you know, stimulate parts of the brain, do you think this kind of translation would have been possible? Is there something about the specificity of controlling, you know, frequency of stimulation or area of stimulation with the optogenetics that made the translation into TBS more uh, intuitive? So it is. Now, with with the TMS, we are using a very rudimental approach to, to what we can do with uh, with optogenetics, right? By all means, the area of stimulation is very general and broader. The frequency of stimulation sometimes can compare to optogenetics, but, but it is by far not as precise as optogenetics. But, but the point is, sometimes maybe the key information is that we don't need that level of specificity. Maybe it is unnecessary to pinpoint from a clinical perspective a single small cluster of cells, but maybe it is enough, as in this case with, with, with TMS, to stimulate a very broad range of axons, a very broad range of cells, because as you know with TMS, we stimulate everything under the probe, but somehow the brain is responding. So I think, long way to tell you that sometimes we, somehow we will learn a lot through the lack of specificity and detail that these clinical techniques are giving us about how to approach research in rodents as well, because it's, it's telling us something, right? It's telling us, look, hey, I'm not specific. I'm simulating the heck out of everything uh, if, if, if you put me on somebody's skull, but I am working. I am changing your interest in looking into cocaine. I don't care anymore. Now figure me out, going backward. How can we translate back, right, what, what actually TMS is doing? What does it mean? So, so there's kind of a circle there. Where absolutely. Have to go back to optogenetics and rodents. And it's, it's beginning now. I think it's going to create a huge number of uh, translational studies backward, right, to figure out from the clinic, okay, this is working. Let's, let's figure it out now. 
why so it's feeding both clinicians it will feed much more clinicians and basic scientists back and forth and uh, I, I think this is just fantastic and it's all because of optogenetics again Right, and very exciting. And just to clarify for the audience, so in this in this case, you're actually working in the PFC, but the original papers you did on drug abuse were all in the brainstem, in the ventral tegmenta area. Obviously, you had patient data to suggest that the PFC was an interesting area to look at, but do you, you guys actually have evidence for connection between these areas. VTA is very highly connected. Yes, yes. So the, the, the VTA sends very important projections to the prefrontal cortex. And, and the general rule in my laboratory, as you can imagine, is that whatever my postdocs want to do, they can do it, right? I, I have zero power or control over that. But the, the <laughs> only thing I, I ask them, it has to be dopamine connected. It has to be a terminal brain region from a major dopamine projection. So it cannot right. be this random brain region that has nothing to do with dopamine. So the key word right. is, it is okay if it's the step up or down, call it as you like, from the dopamine <laughs> cell bodies, but it has to have a very strong tie with dopamine. And kind so. of going along that vein, so since you work on all kinds of things connected to dopamine, in addition to working on cocaine, one very well-known drug of abuse. You've also actually published a paper on Ritalin, and I just had to ask about this because uh, this is a drug that maybe some of the students and maybe even parents in our audience probably have heard of um, as a common treatment for ADHD and sometimes also used maybe in a more abusive context for focusing or, or studying. And so maybe could you explain to us what exactly the compound Ritalin is and whether or not it's actually addictive? And um, also then tell us about your findings on this drug. Okay, so so actually, Ritalin is methylphenidate. That's the name of the molecule, and it does elevate the levels of catecholamines, which are uh, serotonin, for example, dopamine. So by elevating these catecholamines, you have some benefits in terms of learning, right? And we, we know that this is why patients with attention deficit disorders, or attention deficit and hyperactivity disorders, do benefit from, from taking. Italy. However, because of this elevation of dopamine, it has addictive properties. So some people do become addicted to Ritalin. Mm -hmm. the, the study, so it has to be managed very carefully. Now, the, the study that we published that Kei created, and she was a postdoc just a few years ago with Carl Dyseroff at Stanford, mm -hmm. was to show what was the role of dopamine receptors? As you, as many people know, there are two families of dopamine receptors, the D1 family and the D2 family. And basically what Kay showed was that the learning benefits in this rodent model of retaining were due to the D1 family of receptors. Basically, by turning on this family of D1 receptors, these rats learned better to associate cues with, with reward, basically. And by actually shutting down a little bit, the D2 family of receptors were distracted less if you if you want to to anthropomorphize a little bit the, the rodents to humans. So there, it, it was a mechanistic study. We know that Ritalin is beneficial to many people despite the you know side effects. How and what is the exact role of the dopamine receptors in these this learning uh, mechanisms? So that, that was the gist of the study. And, and Ritalin can also bind many other. It's it's more promiscuous than than just dopamine receptors. Yes, right? serotonin receptors, for example, are mm -hmm. so all, all the catecholamine receptors. And and right. by the way, every catecholamine, dopamine, and serotonin can bind to the other family of receptors. So it mm -hmm. is a, a yes, I, I would say more than twenty plus 
receptors will be activated by, by Ritalin, for well, sure. We tend to think of it as a drug that helps people focus. That's why it's a treatment for ADHD. But uh, are you able to differentiate between, you know, better learning versus, because you, you seem to use those interchangeably, learning versus better attention in rats or task on task. So I, I did use that interchangeably because <laughs> in a rat, I, I wouldn't feel comfortable in pushing the envelope too much and say more focus, more attention, more it's, you know, it's, it's blah, blah, blah. We don't know exactly. <laughs> the, the only operation definition is they learn better a task that you teach them faster, less mistakes. That's, that, that's what you've got. And then you could talk about it for days, but uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there. <laughs> and we only have about half an hour here. Exactly, so exactly. We'll save that for later. So as you know, you were here on the West Coast for a long time, but not too long ago, in 2010, you actually moved uh, to the East Coast, that's why it's snowing over there, to Baltimore to lead NIDA um, as its scientific director. And so that's kind of a big job. I'm wondering what motivated the move and uh, what do you see as some of the biggest challenges in this role? So the, the, the move was motivated by two things. Be, uh, one was that uh, even if I really loved San Francisco and my job in the Bay Area, I needed to try something more than just running a laboratory, which is already a gigantic task, but I wanted to try to run an institute. I wanted to try to implement my own vision about science, to try to see uh, junior faculty and senior faculty thrive if I could help them. And that is what I do with half of my time, and the other half is being a scientist. The other reason that really motivated me to move here is that both my wife and my daughter really wanted to get closer to Italy. My, my wife is Italian as well, and we have family in Italy, and we really wanted to cut the flight by six hours or so. <laughs> and, yeah. and I have to say that it was the right move because of the job yeah. is fantastic, and, uh, and yeah. family is very happy, even if, of course, we yeah. miss San Francisco and the Bay Area. Uh -huh. you know? Does your daughter speak Italian? But yes, yes, she does speak yeah. Italian because wow. we force her to spend the summer <laughs> in Italy right. every summer. Right. So, yes, yes, she does. She'll be grateful for that eventually. Eventually, yes, eventually, yes. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a good thing to learn when you're um, <laughs> Yes. And, and I think you mentioned, and I just have to ask this again, uh, you mentioned that in a way having the two jobs makes you like each one better. Yes, or, or yes, as a matter of fact, because I have less time for everything, I crave even more to go to talk to my people and know about the data. So yes, you know, I, I also have this philosophy, which could be completely wrong, but after 10, 12 years of being in a place, doing a job, it is a good idea to, to uh, change, right? Because changing colleagues, changing the environment, somehow it forces you to think differently. It forces you to embrace other people's ideas as I've done when I moved to NIDA by, by meeting with all these other investigators. So it, uh, it, it, it was a shot of fresh blood in, into my science and, and into my, my enthusiasm and energy. So, and, but I also think and I, I never made a secret that jobs like mine as, as a scientific director as well shouldn't be kept for 20 years. Whatever I will do, good or bad, after 10-ish years, let someone else come in, let's have them take over, change everything, improve what, whatever I failed or, or right, strengthen what, what, what I did right. And uh, so I have this philosophy of the 10 to 12 years um, rounds, I think. I guess change is good for the individual, but also the group. It 
It's, it, it is good in this case, especially if, if you run an institute, I think, at an age, in my opinion, uh, an intermediate program. 10, 12 years, then let someone else come in and do, do their own show, and that's what I'm thinking right now. Um, well, I'm glad that it was a good move to the East, but we'll be glad to have you back here in the West for a little bit. Um, and so maybe let's, <laughs> and in the sun, <laughs> where there's no snow, <laughs> uh, can uh, maybe you give us a quick preview of your upcoming talk? So I'm, I'm going to show three unpublished stories. One is going to speak about what, what we mentioned at the beginning. Okay, what can be underlying this freezing of synapses after this cocaine exposure. So the first story is going to be about a potential mechanism of that. The second story, which is also published, is going to be about a gigantic group of underserved brain cells, the microglial cells, and we're just going to show some evidence on what we know now in the midbrain around surrounding dopamine cells. And the third story is going to be actually the clinical study that stemmed from optogenetics that, uh, that my collaborators in Italy did. And I want to talk about that in, in honor of Carl Dasseroth, of course, to tell him, look, now, sure, all our beautiful science nature papers, yes, fantastic, but look at this, people, now it's more than 100 patients actually who have been treated are much better and 100 families are very grateful to you and to optogenetics that someone tried to, to move these basic findings into a treatment. So these are basically the, the three unpublished stories that I'm talking about. Sounds very exciting. So we look forward to that talk. So usually we like to end the uh, interview with a few rapid-fire questions. And so these are short questions, and you can uh, answer with whatever's on the top of your mind. This question is, if you could speak to yourself, Antonello, as a grad student or as a medical student, uh, what advice would you give him? To, to ignore everybody's advice and to just keep on working as hard as you can and keep your enthusiasm as high as you can. That was that's what I did. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad I did it. <laughs> All right, good advice. Second, what accidental discovery have you stumbled upon in your own scientific career, or do you have a favorite from history? So, there are many, there are many. I, I'm constantly facing data from my postdoc telling me, you know what, this is not what I was thinking, this is not the hypothesis I had. And uh, the one thing I've learned is to not think too much about what I would have predicted, or, uh, to just keep my eyes straight to the data to say, okay, you know what, the smartest thing we can do is keep our eyes open. The data is speaking to us. Ignore the reason why our beautiful hypothesis has been just destroyed by this piece of data who cares? The data is talking to us. Let's follow the data. Let's not follow our hypotheses that, that obviously are wrong in this case. It's happening. It has happened many, many times. And a very simple example, the first study that you mentioned, John Williams and I, we were thinking the opposite of what we found with this dopamine D1 agonist effect after cocaine and morphine exposure. And, and it turned out to be, I think, a very cool story. So. That's the first of many examples I could cite. But. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's, uh, that's part of the joy of science, I guess, too. Right. 
Okay, and then the last question, it's more for fun. Uh, how did you ring in the year 2015? Not so long ago. So by, by celebrating our daughter's birthday, because she was born on January 1st. As a matter of fact, we, we checked into the hospital at UCSF the afternoon of the 31st. And so we saw the, you know, the fireworks many years ago, but we, we started celebrating uh, her birthday on the 31st, of course, because it's, it's the most beautiful day for us as well. So that is our New Year's Eve and, and uh, January 1st of every year. Her birthday begins the day before. <laughs> that sounds really excellent. All right. Um, thank you again so much for talking to us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. And okay. I'll see you in just a few days. Yes. See you soon. Thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Shirnaz Banji, Associate Professor in the Department of Cellular and Physiological Sciences at the University of British Columbia. Your Talk is a production of New Right West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, David Lipton, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, and myself, Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, and I'm Ada Yi.